So today we continue our 4BG sermon series. We're excited about this. We're excited uh, that last week you got to hear from Nick Gillespie. I was really want to thank him for uh, coming last week and filling in. Not only was he sort of fill-in while I was out of town, but he also uh, is our community life pastor candidate. And so he was here sort of um, with his family, with Allie, and they were presenting themselves as going, you can know us, and then you're going to vote on us. And so throughout this week, you then voted and um, overwhelmingly came back positive. And so as of uh, last night at five o'clock, we officially have an accepted offer and a new community life pastor. Isn't that great? We can clap for that. Yeah, so Nick and Allie are going to transition out of, they go to Brookside at the moment. They got a couple more weeks there. They want to really finish well there, and we're encouraging them to do that. And then uh, Nick is currently the director of crew at BGSU, and he has probably a couple months to finish out well there and make sure we really hand that over strongly to the next uh, form of leadership. So while their family will join us in a couple weeks, and we'll have them fold them into the family of covenant, uh, Nick will actually start kind of working probably in the new year. And so you can be looking for them. Um, You're welcome as soon as they show up to start asking them all kinds of questions, inviting them over for dinner, all that good stuff. So today we continue our series, like I said, and uh, I guess I want to ask this question. Everybody has this friend, I think. Do you know those friends that always have uh, really big ideas, your big idea friend? Everybody has a big idea friend that always has some new big scheme to make a million bucks but no means to launch them. You know, this is the person who always has a new business idea or a, a new, you know, I, I thought of Google five years before it was even a thing. I could have done that. That Google, that's my idea. And you're like, no, nah, I don't think so. People uh, who are sitting in a restaurant and consistently telling you how good a restaurant would be if they opened it because they have this great restaurant concept. You know these people? I got a couple of those. I really like beets. Okay. So think about this. Vegan craze, all this stuff. What about instead of all you can eat, it's just all you can beat and everything is made from beets. Yeah, beet soda, beet salad, beet burgers. I don't know. If you got a million bucks and you want to invest in my beet restaurant, let me know. A lot of people, everybody has this friend. I am that friend to so many. Great, great plans, great strategy. There's a problem. No investment. In Texas, uh, there, are, there are regions of Texas where that person would be uh, referred to as someone with all hat and no cattle. All hat, no cattle. Talks a big game, but there's nothing to back it up. Scripture is replete with examples of this. The rich young ruler was told to sell it all and follow me. And the scripture told us he went away sad. Jesus looked at him and he said, there he goes, all hat, no cattle. Our mission to know Jesus and make him known, our mission is generous. It offers a generous grace and love to all, and it requires a generous people to fuel it. Our mission matters. We have a great plan. We have a great strategy, and it requires great generosity to pull it off. And as we look at 4BG today, we're looking at it in the, in the frame of generosity. Is what does that look like as we think about how we pour our lives out for our communities, how we pour our lives out for our neighbors? What does it look like to be uh, not, not a church that's all hat and no cattle, but a, a church that throws the hat to the side and gets about the work? A church that backs up what it believes, that backs up the mission with its own generosity. And so in doing so, we can look at Scripture, and so much of Scripture is is actually based on kind of financial principles. Or I should say financial principles are probably based more on Scripture. You see parable after parable and story after story about, about money. If you read the book of Luke, you actually, if you kind of zoom out and just sort of read through the book, you'll realize a great percentage of the book of Luke is about money. Luke, the physician, needed a black and white way to give people these examples. And so the stories of Christ are pulled out, and, and so much of it centers around finances. Why? 
Jesus was about grace and sin and forgiveness and, and why money? Well, because money, more often than not, when, when somebody needs to teach something, you can teach all the gray you want, but until it becomes black and white and it's something you can't run from, the, the lesson never lands. And so often Jesus would teach through kind of financial parables because in that parable you have to think through it and go, I can't really, I can't argue my way out of this. Finances are black and white. The old statement is you can, used to be you can look at a checkbook, but those don't exist anymore. So you can look at someone's debit card statement online, um, which doesn't have the same ring to it, to see where their heart is. You can, you can reconcile a bank account, and you can know where someone's priorities are, where someone's heart is. And so we love to talk about being mission-oriented, about being for BG. So today we're going to look at generosity, the enemy of generosity, the source of generosity, and the path to greater generosity. So Luke chapter 12. I'll put it up on the screen here for you as well. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard. If you have your Bible and a pen, you can underline that. Be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, the night your soul, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Keeps going in verse 32. He says, fear not, Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, be on guard uses a financial parable, teaching a lesson, but he says, be on guard against something even more insidious than that. And when Jesus says, be on guard, when Jesus says, woe to you, when Jesus has a correction, it's probably pretty wise for us to listen. So this man comes up to him and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And on on the surface, we go, okay, well, who knows what that context is. All we need to know about the culture is that the older brother got the inheritance, 100%. It was the cultural norm that the eldest male in the, in the family, when the father died, the eldest ma- male got everything, 100%. And this was just normal. And so what we have here, 99% likely what we have here is a younger brother who's come to Jesus and gone, hey, look, I worked as hard as him. I did everything he did. And just because he's 12 months older than me, just because he's, just because he's older, he gets it all? Jesus, Jesus, tell him to... Jesus is this guy of great equality. Jesus is a guy of great justice. Jesus is a guy who, who, who brings the scales back in line. He goes, Jesus, tell him to divide that with me so we can like have equal share. Tell him to give me some of that money, which would have been a younger brother saying, Jesus, can you go against all cultural tradition here so I can have some of that money? And Jesus doesn't take the bait of like, hey, let's talk about the fairness of the inheritance policy. Jesus goes somewhere else. Jesus says, guard against covetousness. Covetousness, this envy, is what happens when you want something that isn't yours, doesn't belong to you, and you don't deserve. And so the brother comes to Jesus going, give me some of that inheritance. Tell him to, tell him to share. And Jesus goes, 
Why do you want what's not yours? That you didn't earn, that you don't deserve. You can't have that. Guard against covetousness. And it turns out as we look deeper into it, as we begin to to peel back the layers, that, that envy is the enemy of generosity. Envy is the enemy of generosity. We, we always think about greed. We talk about greed. Greed is actually just a symptom of envy. And you can do this with anything. It doesn't have to do, just be with money. Envy another person's success or another person's uh, family situation or another person's career status. or another. Per- we, we can find ourselves, when that whole grass is greener mentality sets in for us, we can find envy in almost any area of life. Man, think of their job status. I wish I had that. Well, think of his success. I wish I had that. Well, think of her family. I wish I had that. That's envy. That's wanting something that isn't yours that you don't necessarily even deserve. But we want it. Envy says, I deserve what they have. I have a friend. Uh, I'm writing a book right now. I'm in the, the early stages of having no publisher, uh, a lot of words, no editor, and a vague idea of where this is all going to land. I have 51,000 words, and I have nothing at this point. Literally, if it all went away, no one in the world would ever know. We have a friend who's publishing a book this year and has a contract for a second book. He's getting paid to publish books. And I have to be happy for this person, even though something in me is like, man, that sure would be nice. (laughs) Love that. But I didn't earn that yet. He wrote a book. It's finished. It's well done. And because the publisher saw how great it was, they offered him another contract. That's just great. I'm happy for this person, but in my, in my darkest spots, in my deepest soul, I can, I can find myself envious and go, gosh, sure would be nice. And envy is wanting something I don't have, and more so often what I don't deserve. Envy is chiefly about acquisition. Envy is chiefly about acquisition. What can I get? And the reason I say envy is the opposite of generosity is because generosity is chiefly about surrender. What can I give? Envy is chiefly about acquisition, and generosity is chiefly about surrender. Envy is chiefly about me. Generosity is chiefly about others. So greed, when we talk about it, envy, when we talk about it, is simply me-centricity in the world. It's looking at the world with a a, a self-centric viewpoint as the center of the universe, all orbits around me. And so when I want something, I should have it. And when I, when I desire something, it should be mine. And, and so greed, envy, these things are simply a way of looking at the world that says, I am chief in the world and everything should be as I want it. Covetousness reveals in us something. It reveals the lie of not enough. Harvard economist Juliet Shore did a, a study, and she did this, this massive study surveying people, households, who had over $100,000 in household income all across the U.S. Two-thirds of American households earning over $100,000 a year reported not having enough to buy what's needed. Two-thirds, 67% of Americans earning over $100,000 don't have enough money to buy what's needed, in their opinion. Now, now just, just rationally, do they have enough money to buy what's needed? Yes, obviously. But what's at play here is there's a covetousness happening because what they think they need, and if we're being honest, what 67% of us who would fall into that category, no matter what our income, think we need, is what someone else has. Well, I don't have the newest iPhone, or I don't have the nicest car, or, I, you know, 
I tried to start my car this morning. It took me 10 minutes in the garage. Everything was turning just fine. It wasn't an alternator. It wasn't the battery. I was racking my brain. I didn't know what to do. I have a manual car because it's super nice. And so I was about to just push it down the driveway and then jump start it because you can do that with, a, with the clutch. And I'm finding myself in my driveway turning the car going, sure it would be nice to have like a brand new Jeep Wrangler with one of those. You know, like, What? Yeah, I saw one the other day. I rode in one at this wedding. This guy rented one. It was really nice. I bet it would have started this morning. That would be nice. I should have one of those. I deserve one of those. I work hard. Where does that come from? I got the car started. I got here and I was like, this is perfect. The car's fine. But something in us is, is wired to think about what other people have and I don't have what I need. We see others with more, with different, with better, and we envy. It's a heart issue. And this, these heart issues are most easily diagnosed by money. But, but it's more than that. The Ten Commandments start out with, you should have no other God before me, and they end with, curiously to me, the, the Ten Commandments end with, with two things about coveting. As if God says, here's the basis for all the commandments I'm going to give you. If you keep me first, the rest are going to be easy. So keep me first. And then he goes through them, no murder, no stealing, no adultery. And then at the end, he goes, unless you think this is just like rule-keeping, don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't covet your neighbor's possessions because it's like if they start with this one and you get all the way through them, guess what? These two, it's still real easy to fall into those traps and those are going to drive you right back down through the sins. Don't covet. Don't envy. So today is about moving towards greater generosity, towards other centricity. So the question we ask is where is your treasure? Your time, your energy, your heart, your resources. Where do you keep them? Where do you store them? Where is your joy? Where is your hope? Maybe the better way to ask it is, what do you envy? When your car doesn't start at 5.33 on a snowy morning, whose car do you want? What do you see and wish was yours and is chiefly your desire for you? There's a wedding I was at last Sunday in in D.C. I was with a friend, a college friend, who was getting married and He's 39 and he's made plenty of money and his wife has a great job or wife-to-be has a great job. So they actually said, we don't want, we're not registered for anything to buy us junk. We don't need more junk. And they gave us a list of things to donate to. They're like, you can give to these people. If you want to, if you really feel the need, you can give to them. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. And yet that'd be easy. I'm like, well, you know, sure. And he goes, you know what? He, He pulls me aside. He goes, in private, I have to tell you something. He goes, we did ask for one wedding present. And I'm like, yes, finally, he's just like me. Because I'm thinking, you know, I registered for a SpongeBob SquarePants lamp just to be funny, and someone bought it for me. So, like, I, I was like the nine-year-old with that gun in Target, just Slim Jims. I'll take three of those, you know. And somebody bought them, and now I have this resilient like guilt that won't leave me. Fifteen years later, I'm thinking, why did I get a SpongeBob lamp? But somebody spent money on that anyway. So I'm thinking, like, here's this guy. What a jerk! He's just asking for donations, making me look bad. And so he goes, I do have to tell you, we did ask for something. I'm like, yes, finally, thank you. You're just like me. We're the same. SpongeBob lamp, what'd you get? And he's like, well, um, his wife is from Thailand, uh, uh, Taiwan. And she's American now. She's been here a long time, but her family's still from Taiwan. And she, he said, we're, we're actually asking for, for her father in the kingdom. He's Buddhist. That's what we want. He goes, we're praying that God would give us a wedding gift. And I'm like, thank you, finally, you're just like me, just as selfish and materialistic. And he goes, we're asking for the salvation for her father. Other-centric. What are your chief desires? If you don't know, your money will show you. 
Do you long for treasure in heaven or something less? So let's go to the Apostle Paul, and he begins to talk about the source of generosity in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, Since you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge and complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, he says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. I'll explain what that means. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Paul is addressing uh, the church at Corinth, and he's collecting for the, uh, the church at Jerusalem. It's, it's in trouble, it's financially hurt, and so he's collecting money from the various churches to uh, give to the church at Jerusalem, to keep it going, to keep it funded, to keep the mission moving forward in Jerusalem. And he, he refers to this idea, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And what that's referring to is the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church was known to be really, really poor. And yet they had given over and above what anyone would have expected. And so he's actually referred back to them. If you go and read through the letter, he's talking about the Macedonians have been wildly generous and we all know that they're poor. So then he comes to Corinth, who has uh, considerably more financial heft. And he goes, so if the Macedonians can do it, can't you? That's basically what Paul is saying. Paul is collecting, and then he roots believers in what? He's collecting from the churches, and he roots the believers in nothing less than the grace of Christ, in Jesus' generosity. And so what we see is that is the source of generosity. The source is not religious checkboxes or wanting to feel good about ourselves. The source of generosity is, is Jesus. Jesus gave of himself until there was nothing left to give. In a sense, Jesus encountered breathtaking bankruptcy on our behalf. That's grace given. Jesus gives his life on the cross so that we might be made whole. And that becomes our model. And Paul is saying that's the model we have. That's what the Macedonians get that the Corinthians don't. It's revolutionary. And it undoes the Old Testament model that these people had been uh, wired into. This 10% model. Give my first 10% of my crop and my first 10% of my, my earnings. Give those to take them to the temple, lay them on the altar, and I can be done with my day. And we're honest, 10% sounds like a lot. For New Testament followers of Jesus, it was the bare minimum because the new standard was Jesus. And what Jesus gave was everything, all of life. It was a call to radical generosity, not just of finances, but of, of our being. There are people in the room who go, I don't have another penny to give. I don't know what you're going to ask me for at the end here. So they might say, God's not interested in your money. God has plenty of money. God is interested in your heart, and your heart is reflected in every aspect of your life, in your time, in your resources, in your talents, in your skills. God is interested in you chiefly. And we've been called to radical generosity in all these ways. And so the trap here for the Christian, the trap is we then go, so I have to give money in order to be a good Christian. That's what you're saying. This religion sneaking in. 1 Peter 2.9, we read this a few weeks ago. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Remember that? A people for his own possession. God, through Peter, we're his treasure. He says, you're my treasure. Peter has the audacity to say that among all of the galaxies and supernovas and stars and the beauty of the universe, that we alone are God's treasure. It's a life-transforming thought that God's loved you so much that he gave Jesus for you. And yet this question lingers. It comes back into our head and we go, so if I give my treasure away, God will reward me with heavenly treasure. That's what you're saying? Or, or, or like maybe giving more money makes me a better Christian. That's evidence that I'm a good Christian? 
And we would argue with that and say, no, the scripture doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say that giving money makes you a good Christian. It says that being a Christian makes you a good giver. That when grace soaks into your life, it's no longer a performance art. It's no longer obligation. Giving money doesn't make you a good Christian. Being a Christian makes you a good giver. God gave his heavenly treasure for you to claim you as his treasure. You are a chosen people. Bought you with his life, and now you have freely a life to give away. This is called the the prospect of found money. Have anybody ever found money before? I remember being a kid, I found money on the way to the grocery store. I found a $20 bill, which for a kid is like a billion (laughs) dollars. And I had this $20 bill, and I was notorious for being the frugal kid. I'd save money for years. And we'd go somewhere, and I'd be like, yeah, I don't think I'm ready to spend yet. And so I was, you know, like a nine-year-old with $700 because I just refused to spend money. I was hoarding it. I didn't know what I was doing. But you find $20, and I spent that thing in like three minutes. I found money. I didn't, it's easy money. Talk to anybody who's ever been to a casino, and like you pull the slot, and all of a sudden the money starts coming out. Guess where that money goes? Right back in the machine. No one ever cashes out. Why do you think the casinos are so nice? Because when you make money, you turn around and spend it back at the casino. Different than if you had earned it. If you earn $1,000, you're like, man, I worked hard for that. If someone hands you $1,000, you're like, yeah, shopping spree. It's found money. It's just different. We spend freely with found money. God gives us found life and says, spend freely. You can splurge. I got this. You can live radically. I got this. You can love others risky. I got this. You can offer your time and your skills and your dollars and your life because generosity is about so much more than money. Not out of obligation to earn, but opportunity to exhibit and re-experience grace. House money. Generous giving, I would argue, is the surest way to re-experience the grace first given to you. Generous giving is the surest way to re-experience the grace first given to you. There is nothing like teaching what you have learned. Ask anybody, how do you learn something about it? How do you know when you really have something? You, you teach it to someone else. Great teachers always give the assignment to have their students teach someone else. Why? It reinforces something, and they have to teach what they have already learned. So when we receive generous grace from God, the greatest way that we can actually know that we have that, that we've learned it, that the concept makes sense, that it soaks deep in our souls, is we turn around and we teach it to someone else. We give generously. And we experience this weird grace as a result. As a missionary, I lived on other people's dime. But I felt so free to give it away, and it felt so liberating to give it away, and it felt so great knowing that, that I could because there was a supply that couldn't run out. I went through seminary. I had a couple that generously paid for my entire seminary. It does something strange that I I felt more generous as a result of the fact that they had taken care of that. And then being able to give something away to someone else, being able to to over and above give, there's greater confidence when the supply is not running out. And so you and I have grace beyond grace. We have generous supply that never runs out. And so we can't be afraid to give. Generosity is the heart of the Father. And something in our hearts learns generous grace when we practice it. This is why Christmas actually becomes more special the older you get. Maybe just for me. But as a child, what does a child want more than anything on Christmas? They want to receive. And what does a parent want more than anything on Christmas? To watch their child open the gift. That receiving turns into giving, and the joy goes from what did I get to let's see what they do when they see what I gave. 
That's a heart posture changing over time that realizes that grace given is so much more precious. Every time you're able to be generous, it just creates this thing in us that wires us a little bit closer to God. It just brings us a little bit more in line with his heart. And so on Christmas morning, I don't care what's for me. Who cares? And the older people get, the less presents around their feet when the family all gathers, and they're more around the kids. Why? Because as you mature, as you learn this grace rhythm that God has invited us into, the thing you realize is more and more the greatest joy is in giving. Do you sleep better at night when you are generous or when you are envious? Do you sleep better at night getting to smile on the way that you gave what you had? Or do you sleep better at night going to sleep dreaming about the thing that you want? There's a path to generosity. How do we move from envious to generous? How do we shrink our hat and raise our cattle? Consider our mission. To know Jesus and make him known. We love this mission. We talk about this mission all the time. We live for this. We want to know Jesus inside and out, and then we want to use our lives to make him known to people far from him. We get teary-eyed about it, or at least I do. We come in here on a Sunday morning, and some days we leave with goosebumps ready to run through a wall for Jesus. Our hearts swell. We preach about it. We sing about it. We clap for it. We fundamentally believe that Jesus crashing into someone's life is an eternal thing, that it's a powerful thing, that it's a life-transforming thing. We love that. And most people genuinely want to be more generous because they know lives are transformed and character gets built and hope becomes real. We know that, that when Jesus shows up in someone's life, meaning shows up with it. So how do we become more generous if there isn't more to give right now? Common question, people go, that would, that's great, but like, no one in the room shows up on Sunday morning and goes, well, 50% of my budget is unspoken for this year. What would you like? We spend it. It's occupied. I would say this, a 180-degree turn happens one degree at a time. A 180-degree turn happens one degree at a time. A man by the name of George Harris was a minister in, in Texas. I once heard him give a, a sermon like this, and he revealed that when he was a young man, he had this desire that he felt God had given him. To, he wanted to um, consume less than he gave. He said, I just at some point in my life want to experience the feeling of consuming less than I give. And he goes, so I just, I interpreted that, he, he says, as I want to give 51% of my income away. So then I can look God in the eyes and go, I gave 51%, I lived on 49. I first heard that and I was like, I'm doing the math in my own head with my salary and bills. And I'm thinking, well, sweet guy, but it's not happening. He says, you, you give away more than you keep. What would it look like to give away 51% of everything you earned? How would you get there? And he, at this point, he's telling us about it. And he's older, he's in his 70s. And he goes, you know how I got there? One degree at a time. One percent at a time. Because so in my late 20s, I, I went from 10% to 11%. And 11 to 12, he goes, 1% at a time doesn't hurt. 50% hurts. Going from 1 to 51, that's painful. But 1%, I could do that. And so he had this goal to add 1% to his giving every year until he finally in his 70s was able to stand up and go, I give away more than I consume. So calculate that in your life. If you're giving zero now and you made it 1%, what does that look like? If you're giving 1%, would you commit to giving 2%? to putting your treasure where your heart is. If you're at 5%, what would it look like to be 6%? I'm not asking you to do anything I don't do. Always the question when it comes to money is like, well, that's great of him to ask, but put your money where your mouth is. 
Craig Dixon's sitting on the aisle. He's an elder and on the finance committee. You can ask him. He knows what I make, and he knows what I give. And he can go pull the numbers, and he will tell you, I'm about 11% of my salary goes right back to the church. And you're welcome to ask him. And he's got permission to give it. Next year, I want to give 12%. And that's not counting the, the money that goes to our African friends and the missionaries in town. And that, that's not counting that 1% here and that 1% here. But, but I'll make a commitment here. I want to do 1% better next year. And it isn't about filling the church coffers. And if you're giving to crew and that's the place that God has impassioned you to, to invest in the kingdom, give there. If young life is your thing, give there. We trust that God's got money worked out. This is about how do we as a people find the path to greater generosity? How do we as a people find 1% more of our heart turned God-directed? Man, Rick Rupp is here. I don't think he'd turn down your 1%. You want to go visit him after the service and ask him what 1% would do in his ministry? How many more people would have clean water as a result of your 1%? He will tell you. That's what this is about. It's about committing to more and more over the course of our lives. What would it look like to have a desire, a heart's desire, not for the Jeep because my car won't start? What would it like, be like to have a desire to have 51% of my life poured out for someone else? Imagine what 1% more ministry means to an eternity for our friends, for our neighbors, for the kingdom. 1% further reach and seeing lives transformed and seeing marriages saved and seeing kids protected. And so the challenge today is clear. We are already a generous church. You should know that. You are generous. We are in an incredible financial position of strength right now that we are able to do whatever we need to do to chase our mission because this church is generous and faithful. And yet we can still grow. We can grow in the days to come and we can move past the enemies of envy and into Jesus' grace And one year at a time, maybe one percent at a time, maybe one degree at a time, grow into greater and greater generosity. Because eternity is worth it. And as we will know in the month to come that it is giving that gives us joy and it is receiving, that less and less so feels like what we're after. So my prayer for us is a church of increasing joy, of an increasing generosity, so that the kingdom around us, so that the ministries and missionaries and the things that make Jesus known all throughout this region are 1% better funded next year and don't know why. And we'll know, because we're 1% closer to being who God has called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your generosity to us. God, it is overwhelming to consider the way that you love us, the way that you give to us. It is challenging, and God, we have a lot of competing things in us when we even think about this area of our life. Father, my own defenses come up, and that you don't understand, or if you knew my positions, I have all the, I have all the retorts. Yet, God, what I, I know to be true is that you gave everything for us, and we're playing with house money here. So, Father, would you grow a a desire in our hearts for generosity? Would you grow a desire in our hearts to see lives changed through our giving of our time, 1% more of my week, 1% more of my talent? Father, give us a picture and a vision for what a city of Bowling Green would look like with 1% more devoted to making you known. If we had 1% more believers that were cleared for eternity, what would that be? 
God, give us a heart for these things. Give us a heart for others. Wash us of our me-centricity and grow us in our others-mindedness so we might be more like you and experience a greater joy. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.